So uh, hello and good afternoon from Cambridge. Uh, and uh, welcome back to the Fairbank Center's Modern China Lecture Series. My name is Arunab Ghosh. I teach modern Chinese history here in the history department at Harvard. Uh, I'm also the convener of this uh, lecture series. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to remind everyone about our final talk of the semester, which is uh, scheduled to take place four weeks from today. Uh, on November 30th, uh, we welcome Joan Judge uh, of York University, who I see is actually with us today in the audience. Um, uh, Joan Judge will speak on print, vernacular languages, and reading practices across the Long Republic. Uh, so please look out for the formal announcement, which will include information on how to, how to register. So it's a, it's, it's a special pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today, uh, a special pleasure because she also happens to be my teacher. Uh, she was uh, one half of a formidable duo that trained me uh, in modern Chinese history at Columbia University. Uh, and I took my first graduate seminar in modern Chinese history. Uh, she may not remember this, uh, back in fall of 2005. Uh, and I've, of course, learned much from her uh, in the years since, uh, not just about Chinese history, uh, but also how to approach uh, teaching Chinese history. Uh, so, Professor Eugenia Lin, a very, very warm welcome to you. Uh, for those of you who do not know her, uh, Professor Lin is a professor of modern Chinese history at Columbia University. She's also the director of the Weatherhead, Weatherhead East Asia Institute at Columbia. She received her BA from Stanford University and then her MA and PhD uh, from UCLA. As a historian, uh, her interests cover a broad range of topics in late imperial and modern Chinese history. These include uh, the history of science and industry, mass media, consumer culture, uh, affect studies and gender, as well as law and urban society. Uh, she's also interested in issues of historiography and critical theory uh, in the study of East Asia. Uh, many of you have likely read her first book, uh, Public Passions, The Trial of Shi Jianqiao and the Rise of Popular Sympathy in Republican China. Public Passions offered a fascinating and original rethinking of publics in modern society. In 2007, the American Historical Association awarded her the John King Fairbank Award, recognizing public passions as the best book in East Asian history in that year. And of course, last year, uh, Professor Lean published her second monograph, uh, which I have up here, uh, uh, titled Vernacular Industrialism in China, Local Innovation and Translated Technologies in the Making of a Cosmetics Empire, 1900 to 1940, which was published by Columbia University Press. In the book, she examines the manufacturing, uh, commercial, and cultural activities of maverick industrialist Chen Diexian. Uh, she uses Chen's case to illustrate how lettered men of early 20th century China engaged in vernacular industrialism, which she defines as the pursuit of industry and science outside of conventional venues. So vernacular industrialism thus draws upon or drew upon processes of experimentation uh, with both local and global practices of manufacturing uh, and was marked by heterogeneous, often ad hoc forms of knowledge and material work. So earlier this year, when I invited Eugenia to deliver a lecture, I suggested she might wish to talk about her work on Chen Diexian and vernacular industrialism. Uh, she, of course, countered and said that we can all read about that ourselves uh, and would much rather present something uh, uh, that, that she's now working on. Uh, so this suggestion, of course, has the power of both not only being true, uh, but also much to our benefit, because we get to now hear something that's completely new uh, from her. So Professor Lin's talk today is titled uh, The Ideograph and a Cantonese Pun. Linguistic Divergence and Spurious Chinese Marks in Global Capitalism. Uh, before I hand things over to her, a few words about format. Uh, Professor Lin will speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, about 45 minutes. We will then follow that with a Q&A session of about uh, 30 minutes or so, finishing at 5.15 or shortly uh, thereafter. Uh, 
If you have questions, uh, please write them up using the Q&A function. I will try and make sure that we get to uh, as many as possible. I'll do my best to curate them as best as possible too. Uh, we would like for you to identify yourself, but since this is being recorded and if you prefer to stay anonymous, uh, we, we perfectly understand and, and that's fine as well. Uh, so, okay, with those logistics out of the way, uh, Eugenia, a very warm welcome again and uh, over to you. So Arunab, thank you so much. And it is indeed um, really such a pleasure to be here. I've always enjoyed, I've, I've given quite a few talks at Harvard, but I have to say this time, it's particularly meaningful uh, being invited by you. And uh, of course, I remember the uh, seminar <laughs> that you took with me. It was a fantastic seminar with um, many of the uh, rising stars in the fields uh, emerging from that particular seminar, including of course yourself. So, so again, I'm just so thrilled to, to be here. Uh, and I also quickly wanted to give a shout out to Mark Grady for all his help and the Fairbeck Center for Chinese Studies. Uh, so um, it's a real honor to be included in the modern, modern China lecture series. Uh, so today's talk, I'm going to start with this particular quote from an article in uh, the uh, Shibao. Um, so take notice, right? Xiang Mao soap buyers. Okay. Recently, a counterfeit Xiang Mao soap has appeared on the market. Uh, and one can be easily deceived by it if one does not pay careful attention. When you buy marks, oh, sorry, when you buy Xiang Mao soap, take note that the words and design marks are thick and bulky. The quality of the material is durable, solid, yet smooth, and the color is pale yellow. Then it, should be a, then it should be the genuine article, zhenhuo. If the words and marks are small, the material not durable and the color deep yellow, it is not authentic, fei zhenhuo. I solemnly notify all of you to be careful and to keep one's eyes open as much as one can. Okay, this quote uh, instructs Chinese consumers of, uh, soap, particularly the Xiangmao soap, which was manufactured by a British manufacturer, the William Gossage and Sons Company. Uh, and it, it instructs the buyers on how to recognize the genuine product. It, emphasize, it emphasizes the need to pay attention to the words and design marks, along with the quality and color of uh, the uh, material of the cake. Uh, the targeted consumer is urged to, quote, keep one's eyes open as much as one can. The very fact that such a notice had to be published spoke to growing anxiety uh, about the unruly profusion of goods in China's markets during an era when the country was navigating its entry into global capitalism. As China's markets went global in the latter half of the 19th century, mass-produced commodities, some imported foreign brand, as foreign brands, others domestically produced, saturated daily life. With advances in modern chemistry and industrial manufacturing, patent medicines, cosmetics, daily use items were among the most popular. Seeking to sell their products at an unprecedented economy of scale and scope, manufacturers of such commodities quickly came to regard the modern trademark as an indispensable means to carve out distinction for their product among a sea of indistinguishable or nearly indistinguishable products. It was often difficult, if not impossible, for even the most discerning consumer to determine the quality of the commodity 
uh, or the danger um, of the remedy uh, in, in, in a potion um, based on the mere appearance of the item. A trademark guaranteeing the reputation of a brand was meant to aid consumers to make such evaluations. And as the authority of trademarks spread, so too did the copying of trademarks. Uh, So-called counterfeiting successful marks and packaging designs, along with the copying of brain name, na brain na brand names, sorry, quickly became highly lucrative endeavors that copycats around the world undertook to sell their wares. As this copying spread, the question of how to discern an authentic mark, and as we explore below, how to appreciate a non-authentic, wittily copied mark became part of China's quotidian commercial world. Uh, these, uh, this, these issues would also emerge as topics of debate in loftier legal and diplomatic settings. While the copying of pharmaceutical commodities such as soap and patent medicine was worldwide, Chinese manufacturers proved to be particularly adept copiers and adapters. As foreign traders and merchants started to enter into China's markets in the 19th century, they discovered guild mechanisms and customary protection of marks that provided considerable protection to domestic producers, uh, and they were not extended to their products. Uh, with little recourse, many foreign powers then began calling for reform in China's commercial law. The British Foreign Office, for example, pressed the matter with successive Chinese regimes starting at the turn of the 20th century until the 1930s, when the Guomindang formally drafted a trademark law. It was against this backdrop that pharmaceutical multinationals aggressively pursued sus suspected copycats on the ground. Companies such as William Gossage and Sons, the manufacturer of the above mentioned soap, uh, as well as its import company, the Xiangmao Foreign Company, um, which was also known in English as the A.R. Burkle and Sons Company, regularly deployed undercover agents and detectives to scour the markets in Chinese cities for fraudulent goods and counterfeits employing derivative marks. Sorry, my apologies. So, Okay, um, sorry, this is the slide. Uh, bear with me, I'm still a little bit rusty despite doing Zoom for a year. Um, so here is the, the uh, uh, Xiangmao honey soap was an extremely popular soap that was being sold by William Gossage and Sons. Uh, and this is an advertisement for that soap in Shanghai. Uh, and this is uh, A.L. Burkle and Sons was the import company that had imported that regularly imported uh, the uh, Gossage and Sons uh, soap and sold uh, the soap locally. Um, so it's these kinds of pharmaceutical firms like William Gossage and Sons and uh, these types of import companies that would bring suspected counterfeiters uh, after they scoured the ground for, um, you know, with the sending out armies of detectives, they would bring suspected counterfeiters to counselor courts uh, to press their case. In Shanghai, British and foreign firms brought trademark infringement cases to the Shanghai Mixed Court in particular, where foreign assessors worked with Chinese magistrates to preside over cases that involved foreign subjects. 
Now, today's talk is actually part of a larger project uh, now, now tentatively called Making the Chinese Copycat. And uh, the larger copycat argues that, or the larger project, sorry, argues that despite uneven relations of global power in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, actions by a host of Chinese actors, manufacturers, alleged copiers, consumers, lawyers, as well as the Chinese state, uh, it pinched upon, even if often unintentional, unintentionally and obliquely, the evolving shape of a new regime of trademark in, infringement and by extension, the para parameters of modern IP. Um, the project also hopes to shed light on a host of other issues uh, moving beyond the issue of law uh, and uh, highlight what uh, those other issues were at stake in the cases. Uh, this uh, would include, for example, the waning imperial power of Great Britain and other imperialist nations and their efforts to secure their power within colonial outposts, as well as China's effort to navigate its entry onto the stage of global capitalism, despite a very weak geopolitical standing. Um, in this uh, paper, I focus on legal trials specifically involving the alleged counterfeiting of the Xiangmao honey soap that uh, I just showed you above. Um, and it does so to illuminate the extent to which Chinese language emerged as a challenge to the prosecution of alleged copycats in courts. These cases, I, I hope to show, serve to facilitate what was to become an ongoing global dialogue about what constituted an authentic mark, how copying and ownership of marks were to be litigated, and how the emerging trademark regime could or could not accommodate different aspects of the Chinese language and the commercial world, and the Chinese commercial world. Uh, the legal understanding of the Chinese written character in particular was, question, was questioned. Some sought to marginalize the Chinese written character in the courtroom and rendered it, render it as uh, unsuitable for legal and commercial modernity. So too was the legal place of a vibrant culture of word place in Chinese linguistic and co commercial culture. Trademark litigation, I will show, could not always grasp the complexity of the Chinese language, as well as the Chinese consumer market, uh, and uh, including the presence of repurposed trademarks that were meant to help consumers navigate a multi-tiered sector of recycled and derivative goods. So let me start with, uh, I will be presenting two vignettes to illuminate some of these issues. And uh, let me start with vignette one. Uh, this is a a trial, actually uh, probably China's first trademark infringement trial that took place in uh, 1889 uh, in the Shanghai Mix Court. It featured uh, the, um, this uh, A.L. Burkle's Xiangmao soap, and uh, which was the, the import company. This is a Shanghai-based um, British import-export firm that imported uh, Gossage's soap. Uh, and uh, the, Chinese, the name of the soap, in English it's honey beehive soap, but they translated it and they used the name of the import, uh, Burkle's Chinese name, Xiaomao, to name the soap itself. Uh, the import firm was uh, founded in 1867, and so by 1889 it was actually a very well-established and, and, and quite powerful firm in Shanghai. Uh, and uh, Burkle was, Burkle and Sons, 
was accusing the Guangyi Company, a Chinese manufacturing firm, of trademark infringement. Uh, Berkel and Sons alleged that uh, Guangyi Company's Xiangqi uh, soap was infringing upon the trademark for Xiangmao soap. Um, the verdict of this 1889 trial ultimately found the, Guang, uh, the Guangyi Company not guilty of infringement, but it did fine it a thousand tails of silver for imitation. Uh, the final decision then ordered the Chinese company to stop using the two characters Xiang and uh, Qi in the name of its soap, since when combined, they were too similar to the eponymous name of the honey soap, right, Xiang Mao. Highly dissatisfied with this ruling, A.R. Burkle and Sons argued that the court had ruled favor favorably for Guangyi only because its owner was of high standing in China at the time and uh, initiated a retrial. The 1900 retrial took place and upheld the original decision of, um, of, of imitation. Now, uh, today I wanna to focus on the 1889 trial and a lively courtroom exchange that took place among the key participants. Um, this was an exchange that took place among a mix, the mixed court official who ran uh, the, um, the trial, this uh, surname wouldn't, uh, uh, as well as the British vice counsel who was representing A.R. Burkle and Sons. Uh, I, it's in the newspapers he was referred to as May. And then the owner of the Guangyi company, uh, a Xu Huafeng, uh, who was um, the uh, no ordinary merchant. He was actually the son of Xu Shou. Many of you who study uh, the self-strengthening movement or the late Qing will know Xu Shou, who was a famous Qing scholar affiliated with the Jiangnan Manufacturing uh, Bureau uh, and uh, who was a, an early chemist. Um, like his father, Huafeng was both classically trained, right? So this was a period where all of these uh, intellectuals and Wenjin, uh, you know, were uh, classically trained for uh, the civil service examination. Uh, but since uh, the two were affiliated with the Jiangnan Manufacturing Bureau, uh, Huafeng was also uh, well-versed in newly translated scientific and industrial knowledge. Uh, and uh, he too was uh, part of the Jiangnan Manufacturing Bureau. He was going to serve as a teacher in the mechanical school. And after the death of his father, uh, he assumed the directorship of the renowned Shanghai Polytechnic Institute, right? The Gezhi Shuyue. So this was a very, very, very powerful individual. Um, and uh, he turned down uh, pursuing a position in officialdom and instead uh, moved uh, even further into private industry after the Jiangnan Manufacturing Bureau uh, and turned his uh, scientific knowledge into industrial success, establishing this Guangyi company. So he was part of this new breed of Chinese intellectuals who proved actually quite adept at navigating new commercial frameworks um, emerging in the turn of the 20th century. Um, we will see here too that she who represented himself would prove a formidable foe to the lawyer representing A.R. Burkle and Sons. Now, um, as the 1889 litigation was unprecedented, it was the first uh, in China, both sides experimented with a, a, an array of legal and cultural arguments in court. What I would like to focus on today is a linguistically, the linguistically focused sub-argument that occurred 
Um, and within that uh, argument, uh, uh, I want to illustrate how radically divergent notions of the Chinese written character um, were assumed. Uh, uh, A.R. Burkle and Sons alleged that the Guangyi company's Xiangqi soap was infringing upon its trademark for the Xiangmao soap. So a large part of the trial was spent, right, looking at the difference at the two characters of Mao versus Qi and questioning whether they were uh, similar enough for the grounds of infringement. Um, Wynn himself, uh, the mixed court counselor, the uh, mixed court uh, official, was also interested in this binary, in these two characters, and he aggressively interrogated Xu about how and why the Guangyi Company chose the particular character of of uh, of Qi. In response, she explained that the company chose Qi as it was a plant similar to ginseng. May. The uh, vice, the British counselor then interjected, insisting that she was not even a word. This prompted Xu to uh, draw the Kangxi dictionary out of his sleeve and dramatically present it as evidence that she was indeed a word. When followed up by asking why the Guangyi company specifically combined the two characters, Xiang and Xi, she replied that names can be designated freely, that Xiang Mao had alternative names like Xiangchang, Maochang, and so on, and reason that if A.R. Burkle and Sons had done so, why couldn't the Guangyi company? She then launched into a forensic analysis of the trademarks in order to make a case for the absolute distinction between the two marks. For him, the Chinese characters um, were uh, utterly distinct. Okay, in contrast, um, the for May, the British... Uh, vice counsel, the issue at hand was uh, the matter of infringement. And to uh, establish that, he wanted to establish graphic convergence between the two characters. So while she protested, stating the two were ontologically different and turned uh, to the Kangxi Dictionary to verify this point, May insisted that the difference is negligible. Graphic resemblance was unmistakable. Um, the, uh, these two divergent views of Chinese characters in the 1889 courtroom are notable uh, and not idiosyncratic. They, they emerge from larger understandings of the Chinese character. Um, May's insistence of graphic resemblance was partly because of you know, the legal uh, uh, motive to demonstrate infringement. Um, but the idea that Chinese characters were ideographic went uh, far beyond May. Such a view had coalesced among Orientalist linguists in the 19th century uh, and was uh, reinforced with the early 19th century linguistic fascination with Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, it was also linked to the prevailing belief that not just the Chinese language, but the culture as a whole was increasingly obsolete by the latter part of the 19th century, for example. Historical and comparative philologists uh, were uh, critical of both the ideograph, but also the Chinese grammar. And uh, Chinese grammar became ind an indicator not of bounty, but of lack. In 1864, an American linguist, William Dwight Whitney, gave a lecture titled Language and the Study 
of language at the Smithsonian Institution, where he advanced the idea that the monosyllabic character of the classical Chinese language was indicative of the, language, uh, the language's deficiency in its grammar. And to demonstrate this, he purposely translated a Mencius quote in a literal, nearly word-by-word -word way that in inevitably generated a pidgin translation uh, that failed to convey the richness of the language. Um, of course, what was neglected in this argument was how Chinese language had what English or German might lack, including tonal separation of otherwise identical syllables or a semantically based writing system with 40,000 distinct signs. Um, the uh, field of linguistics, uh, uh, this view of the 19th century Chinese grammar and Chinese ideograph continued to hold sway after the turn of the 20th century. Both reform, reform iconoclastic, iconoclastic reformists, both within and beyond China, were to cite the Chinese ideograph, the Chinese character um, uh, being ideographic in nature as the basis of why there was a need for script reform. Uh, and linking script reform to the modernization of China. Uh, by 1919, there was a very famous uh, essay called The Chinese Written Character as a Medium for Poetry. This was written by uh, Ernest Finolosa and circulated by Ezra Pound, and it's very influential in modernist poetry. Um, while the idea of the Chinese ideograph persisted into the 20th century, um, Xu, uh, and, and informed Chinese intellectuals in the 20th century, Xu Huafeng was arguing in the courtroom prior to this 20th century sense of crisis among Chinese intellectuals about the Chinese writing system. He remained actually quite confident about the uh, Chinese character. And for Xu, the distinctness, distinctiveness of a, of a Chinese character, right, between the uh, qi and mao, was less informed by its overall graphic form, but instead turned on stroke order, tonal distinction, as well as phonological, etymological, and semantic qualities, right? So this is a, a long tradition. She was drawing on kaozhengxie, right? Evidentiary scholars, right? That an approach that gained prominence during the Qing, as many of you know, that combined textual criticism and empiricism in efforts to find the original interpretation of classical texts from antiquity, and which demanded philological mastery over Chinese characters. Um, and during the heyday of the movement in the 18th century, right, the Kangxi Emperor uh, sponsored a slew of philological projects, including the Kangxi Dictionary that she had just brandished, right, that I just described she brandishing in the courtroom. Um, and by the end of the 19th and into even into the early 20th centuries, some reformist scholars, um, including Liang Qichao and Gu uh, Diegang, continued to embrace evidentiary scholars, uh, uh, evidentiary scholarship and studies um, as an indigenous form of empiricism. Certainly, Xu Huafeng, his classical training meant that he appreciated um, uh, this kind of understanding of of the um, character not based on it being an ideograph, but looking at the semantic qualities, right? Semantic and phonological qualities. Now, she proved to be highly persuasive as he uh, argued against a case for graphic similarity in the mixed court. He definitely exposed multiple hypocrisies in the logic of both uh, Wynne and the British Vice Council May. He flatly rejected the proposition of graphic similarity, stating, since our China has had a written language, we pay attention to strokes, pronunciation, meaning, 
asked for considering it to be unacceptable based on the similarity of shapes. It is unheard of since ancient times. He further argued that it would be futile to make uh, an argument that characters were overly similar based on shape in Chinese since so many characters were so similar, right? So the Tian and the Yao, he cites as examples that are often appearing in trademarks and that look almost identical and yet are not the basis of infringement. He then lists a character of Chinese, uh, a list of characters in Chinese that are similar in shape to Mao, right? Including, right, Chen, Fa, Rong, Qi, Di, etc. Okay. And then finally he says, well, Westerners make different words from 26 letters. Often the two words that are different by one stroke or letter have completely different pronunciations and meanings. May I ask if you would also avoid using those? So in the end, Vice Council uh, May, uh, Wynn came up with some sort of a compromise verdict. Right, um, and uh, this compromise actually invited Vice Council May accusing him of not daring to persecute Xu because Xu was a prominent member of the Jiangnan Manufacturing Bureau. Uh, the verdict was one of imitation, but not infringement, right? Um, Xu rejoined uh, May's accusation, stating that the final decision was not a matter of his public office, but grounded in reason and evidence. He then pointedly exclaimed, is it because Burkhill's products are inferior that you spared no effort to fight over the character of Qi? Despite the testy exchange, Wen uh, stuck to his guns and said that this was a verdict of imitation, uh, but decided that the mark had not risen to the level of infringement. Uh, the final court reads as follows. A.R. Burkle and Sons sued Xu Zhushan, which is Xu Huafeng's alternate name, for trademark infringement regarding the brand Xiangqi soap that he manufactured. This court decides that the two uh, characters are similar and demands that Xu Zhushan change the character Qi. So Wen resisted finding Xu uh, for infringement, but he did call on him to uh, issue a public announcement in newspapers to declare without equivocation that Xiang Mao and Xiang, uh, Xiang Mao and Xiangqi are not related. Um, so uh, upon hearing the decision, May was extremely unhappy and threatened to appeal. Xu Tu protested the part of the ruling that called for him to change his brand name and strode angrily, angrily out of the court. The ruling notwithstanding, Xu's courtroom apparently won him many fans. As he strode out, Western observers gave him a thumbs up. Okay, I'd like to move to uh, the second case, the second vignette um, that deals with a Cantonese pun. So on July 12th, 1919, the North China Daily News ran an article with the headline, Infringement of Trademarks, Chinese Imitations of Gossage's Soap. The article then proceeds uh, noting that, quote, another interesting judgment was delivered last Friday in the mixed court in a passing off case in which Mr. A.R. Burkle and Sons requested an injunction to restrain Shunda dealers in furniture and sundries from selling or permitting to be sold soap bearing marks and characters so contrived as to represent marks and characters used by the plaintiffs. Relief by the way of damages was also sought. So here, yet again, Burkle and Sons 
uh, are going after, we're going after a local company for selling spurious soap that uh, they claim were imitating at, um, or if not infringing upon Gossage's soap, Xiangmao. Uh, um, at the heart of this case was this notion of passing off. This was a principle in uh, Anglo-American common law that referred to the practice of using improper marks to make the public believe they were consuming a commodity of another manufacturer's and thus passing off one product for another. This principle was meant to protect the trade uh, reputation of manufacturers and prevent customers from being deceived, which would be caused by one manufacturer passing off his or her product for another's. Shrin Ta was accused of selling soap that was allegedly fraudulent in this manner, namely that it was seeking to pass itself off, its soap off, as Gossage's Xiangmao honey soap. To establish the fraud, uh, the plaintiffs focused on the beehive carving featured on the front of the soap bar. And unfortunately, this is not an ideal image, but if you look right here, you can see this is the soap that's featured in the advertisement. And this is the honey soap here. There's a beehive, right? So that's the carving is actually in front of the soap. Um, and advertisers would purposely include the, uh, oftentimes include the soap bar and its carvings uh, when it uh, advertises its product in order to showcase the, what is an authentic um, uh, uh, commodity or soap. Uh, soap. Um, and then uh, the plaintiff didn't all, also focused on the back. If you see here, there are characters, this is very unclear again, I apologize, but there are characters that are um, featured on the back of the soap that are carved into the back of the soap. Um, there were four characters and they're here. Bei Ji Xiang Hang that were carved on the back of the cake. And the plaintiffs specifically charged that the soap sold by this Shrin Ta um, uh, furniture store bore uh, uh, a beehive mark that uncannily resembled the beehive trademark featured here on the Gossages and Sons honey soap, which was registered in England and also in Shanghai. Um, so they were very concerned about that. If they found the beehive to be problematic, uh, they did co uh, comment on the brand carved on the back of the soap cake in the following way. They noted how the four characters appeared. So these, these four right here, Bei Ji, uh, Bei Ji, Xiang Hang, they, uh, they, they appeared, the uh, um, prosecutors uh, argued, devoid of conjunctive significance, referring to the fact that the four characters actually have no meaning when strung together in Chinese. Yet what the prosecutors seemed to miss or certainly did not press was that these four characters were actually a highly suggest suggestive pun uh, and a play on the dialect pronunciation of the, uh, of the, the name. So um, the first, so the, the pun itself turns on the first two characters, Beiji, which um, if pronounced in Cantonese, gay, I can't, I'm not a Cantonese uh, speaker, so I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but it is a pun. It's basically the pronunciation is uh, identical to how you would, to the Burkhell name pronounced in Cantonese. Um, and then uh, there's also focus on the last two. If you were to look at the last two um, characters in, 
the um, in Xiang in in this name Xianghang, right? Xianghang has no meaning, right? But it does rhyme with Yanghang or foreign company, which is in the name of uh, the Xiang uh, Mao Yanghang, right? The other uh, the uh, Burkhill's um, Mandarin name and proper name. Um, so, and on top of that, in addition to rhyming with Yang Hang, the Xiang is the same as the character Xiang Mao, right? So there are a lot of puns um, um, in, and, and this, this particular uh, derivative, so-called allegedly derivative uh, name of the soap by, that was being sold by the Shunta company, right? Uh, was pregnant with, with meaning. Um, now, and, and it turned on several layers of wordplay and punning. Okay. Um, more generally, as trademarks gained increasingly prominence and importance um, with mass manufacturing, the practice of punning and wordplay, which had a long history in Chinese culture and literature, was wittily present in the burgeoning commercial culture of early 20th century China. With its numerous homophones and graphically similar characters, Chinese lends itself to wordplay and puns both in oral and visual terms. Dialect is also often involved where puns would rest on the similarity or dissimilarity of the oral pronunciation of a character in a dialect distinct from its Mandarin pronunciation, producing not only a different meaning from the visual sign, but also from the standard pronunciation. Crafters of modern trademarks, in commercial centers and treaty ports such as Shanghai and Guangzhou, uh, where uh, you know, regional dialect was prominent, showed considerable appreciation of wordplay and punning, uh, especially with dialect. As these ports were where foreigners mingled with locals who spoke both Mandarin and their respective dialects, and increasingly some English, a new cosmopolitan linguistic landscape provided fodder for this linguistic play in trademarks. Just to give you another example, this comes from my uh, recent book on Chen Diexian, who was similar to Xu Huafeng, an early Chinese industrialist who uh, had also deep literary knowledge and, and was a winner of literatus. Um, and uh, this is his trademark. Uh, he, he was a producer of butterfly brand cosmetics. Um, it was one of China's most uh, popular uh, cosmetics and daily uh, goods brand um, and manufactured by his company Association for Household Industry. And as a brand, it was multilingual and employed several le levels of linguistic wit. Um, so here on the left is the registered mark, right? And you see it in English. It is uh, butterfly. Um, but if you look at the top mark, uh, the top, the middle um, trademark, um, you see the actual characters in Chinese are wu di pai, right, without peer. And this was a pun, or not a pun, but it was a reference to the national products movement because he himself was a uh, right, leader, a national products movement leader. And the wu di meant it was peerless without peer among the uh, enemy products, right? Um, but the actual sort of militaristic without enemy name, uh, which was meant to evoke a passionate call to arms within the context of the national product movement, um, actually assumed a much more whimsical, playful uh, connotation in Shanghaiese. Um, so those of you who know Shanghaiese, uh, Wu Di Pai becomes much wittier. 
and Wudi is actually pronounced in Shanghaiese as in a way that's similar, kutie, right, to butterfly, the Shanghainese, Shanghainese pronunciation of butterfly, which is, again, the English name and visually the key um, uh, um, uh, visual mark of this particular trademark, right? And here to the right, you see his highly popular um, product. Um, this is a product that is a tooth powder, but you could also use the tooth powder to, on your face as a face powder. And it is uh, the, uh, as you see with the decoration, um, the butterfly uh, is prominent. Uh, and in fact, Chen uh, Xian, the, the, the um, manufacturer is himself, uh, his name, his public name was Die Xian, right? Die being butterfly, the butterfly immortal, uh, another pun. Uh, and he himself was a Mandarin duck and butterfly writer where um, these tropes of butterflies um, and Mandarin ducks, you know, evoked uh, kind of the romanticism of uh, that kind of sentimental literature. So it's a play on many levels. Um, and uh, it, and so the uh, xiangmao uh, is, and uh, Cantonese pun was uh, was hardly uh, alone um, on the market in terms of punny marks. Now, if wordplay was often deployed in Chinese trademarks, Western corporations did not always appreciate uh, how those puns worked, nor did they appreciate the fully homophonic nature of the Chinese character that would allow for puns, uh, nor did they uh, understand uh, the implications then that these linguistic characters had for trademark infringement. Um, as their markets went global, multinational pharmaceuticals such as William Gossage and Sons, but also uh, such as Burroughs Welcome and Company, um, uh, and other British transnationals invested considerable energy into finding the best way to translate trademarks into foreign languages. And here is a memo. It's a 1904 memo by the Burroughs Welcoming Company. It's, it's one written by a uh, A.E. Warden, who was the um, Burroughs Welcoming Company secretariat who was in charge of trademarks um, and, and also that, that same office was in charge of finding copiers throughout the world. And um, in this particular 1904 memo, A.E. Warden discusses the difficulty of translating um, its tra trademarks into any language, right? It could be, you know, it's an English trademark, but this was going to be a challenge when you translate and find appropriate translation for uh, its uh, marks into Romance languages, but the particular challenge was in non-Romance languages. Um, and uh, in this memo, uh, Ms. A.E. Warden uh, writes how word marks in particular rely on both so-called eye and ear appeal, and that the ear appeal or the sound of the mark is particularly difficult to translate effectively. The document proceeds by instructing the characters of the foreign language producing as near as possible, the sound of the trademark should be arranged between, and it is this I'm quoting here, it should be arranged between parentheses in a subservient position in the English trademark. Uh, the characters composing the word being regarded without exception as the trademark, okay? And to illustrate the point, right? So this actually comes right here. That's the quote right here. And to illustrate the point, the document then uh, gives examples, right, of the Vinolia brand. So in English, the Vinolia brand would just be Vinolia, but in Turkish, it would be Vinolia with the Turkish 
writing underneath that would explain the pronunciation of the Nolia in Turkish. And similarly, there's Chinese. And if you see here, the little squiggly marks, that was supposed to be Chinese, right? The Chinese pronunciation of the Nolia. Um, the memo goes on uh, and provides an extended counterfactual example of a Chinese language trademark being translated and registered into English. Um, it's, it starts here, but I'll use this, this slide to um, share the, the quote. Um, supposing that certain characters which were not readable without a knowledge of the Chinese language render the sound Yahoo Pei, I would, were I the owner of the Chinese trademark, register in the United Kingdom the symbols, which in Chinese produce that sound and on my labels and in my advertisements of the product issued under that trademark. I would put the English letters, which would give the pronunciation of my Chinese symbols, Yahoo Pei, in parentheses beneath my trademark regarding the Chinese symbols as my trademark. It is inconceivable in my mind that such procedure would make it permissible for anyone to use the term Yahoo Pay as a trademark for similar goods subsequent to my adoption of my trademark. And if one did so on the ground that my trademark was the Chinese symbols and not the sound of Yahoo Pay, I feel sure my rights in the sound of my trademark would be maintainable. Right? So this is an effort on the part of Burroughs Welcoming Company and others to claim, to stake a claim over the sound of the, uh, the name uh, in other languages. And the choice of Chinese here with its almost comical orientalist rendering of a Chinese sounding brand name, Yahoo Pei, was not accidental. It suggests how the Chinese language assumed a particularly fraught position in Warden's imagination of, and more broadly, the Western imagination, right, of difficult languages in which to render trademarks, especially from a phonetic perspective. So, Warden proceeds with confidence that the difficult language of Chinese could be captured by the proper trademark and that the quote-unquote rights in the sound of my trademark would be maintainable. Such an assertion, while stated with impressive certitude, ultimately belies, however, a, a lack of understanding of the highly homophonic nature of the Chinese language and the troubles that were to ensue in trademark infringement cases. And indeed, this issue of homophones would arise as a nettlesome problem in the 1919 mixed court case featuring this allegedly derivative soap being sold by the Shrinta company. Um, the media coverage of the uh, 1919 case was quick to identify the pun and wordplay that lay at the heart of the soap's trademark, but uh, none of it actually fleshed out its full legal implications. The North China Herald article on the case presents the imitation and by extension deception as a given, stating at one point that, quote, there can, I think, be no question as to imitation itself or the probability of deception. The issue then was that the plaintiff was not able to establish evidence of explicit fraudulent intent. Uh, legally, the bar for deception was very, very high and evidence had to be found not only that the mark functioned to deceive or that it had been created with the intent to deceive, but that the defendant, Shrinta in this case, thought that this deception was possible. Uh, and this was where they could not, um, this, this alone, they could not establish uh, that. Um, so at the crux of the trademark law was the idea that a trademark was meant to assure the public and serve as a guarantor of the quality of the object by branding the reputation of the merchant or manufacturer. An offending trademark was one that sought to deceive the public 
to pass off one good for another and thereby claim the reputation of the targeted manufacturer. In contrast to this legal premise of offending marks confounding the public, the success of the mark on the soap being sold by the uh, Xuanda company turned on its ability not to deceive, but to invite complicity from a knowing audience. So the clever pun and wordplay embedded in the four characters, Bei Ji Xiang Hong, suggests that the soap's maker and seller was fully aware of William Gossage's Xiaomao soap and was keenly intent on taking advantage of the Xiaomao mark and by extension, Gossage's reputation. And by definition, the pun required the audience to be in on the ruse, recognize the derivative nature of the brand name to make the pun possible. The consuming public was thus expected to be fully aware and indeed appreciative of the linguistic play. In strict legal terms, the Shrinta sold soap would thus not qualify as counterfeited or fraudulent items as its mark was not meant or expected to be able to deceive the public, but in fact turned on the public's complicity. This indeed may have been why the plaintiffs appeared silent on the matter in court. For our purposes, it was precisely the lack of attention to how the very success of Shrinta's punning trademark rested on a knowing audience that lays bare the larger distinction between the evolving legal definition of trademarks and China's commercial linguistic culture. The emerging global trademark law was not entirely able to accommodate the linguistic peculiarities of China's commercial culture and trademarks uh, that turned on those peculiarities. They, they oftentimes eluded full crackdown. Indeed, the final verdict in the case regarded the fact that the defendants had been served with the writ of notice of the application for an interlocutor injunction to withdraw the offending article from sale and was requested to refrain from selling it in the future. That the defendant did not choose to do so prompted penalty. The article covering the case then notes, by a course of prevarication such as is unfortunately too often adopted in these courts, they have put plaintiffs to unnecessary expense in defense of their rights. An injunction must be granted with costs as between party and party. So Shrinta in the end had to pay for the costs incurred, but a verdict of fraud and infringement was conspicuously absent. So some concluding thoughts. These two cases featuring um, alleged counterfeiting of Xiaomao honey soap have allowed us to explore how Chinese language and linguistic practices in, in Chinese commercial culture often stymied Western manufacturers' attempts to pursue and prosecute alleged copycats. They bring to the fore how the emerging trademark regime was premised on romance languages and failed to appreciate the complexity of both the Chinese language and the nature of the Chinese consumer market. In the 1889 Xiaomao case, the first ever trademark litigation in China, it was evident that the emerging global trademark regime was premised on an orientalist understanding of the Chinese character as ideograph. In, in the 1919 case, which we just discussed, the modern trademark regime failed to appreciate the homophonic nature of the Chinese language um, by treating the language as a single national language. It was unable to grasp uh, the homophonic nature of the Chinese language and its uh, um, ability to uh, serve uh, purposes for punning and by treating language as single national languages, right? So not being able to grasp the place dialect. Both the homophonic nature and the dialect were, were um, often the basis of wordplay and punning in both 
quote unquote original Chinese trademarks and also um, allegedly derivative ones. So it was used widely. Yet trademark law proved unable to capture or accommodate these practices. The key legal premise that an offending mark uh, rested on its function to see the public prevented the system from even recognizing marks that were that while likely to have really been emulative, turned precisely on a knowing audience, willing to purchase the counterfeit because of the witty pun. In other words, the premise behind the passing off principle that spurious marks deceive the public and buyers needed to beware is deeply at odds with China's commercial linguistic culture where marks rested on the fact that buyers were in fact keenly aware. Such linguistic practices common in Chinese trademarks were actually part of a larger knockoff culture that assumed a knowing audience. Um, and this was widely accepted in Chinese commercial life, but would have no space in the emerging legal regime of IP. Recycled markets, multi-tiered copies, fang mao, abounded along with the arrival of expensive foreign brands in China's markets. China's material landscape saw the proliferation of of these multiple tiered markets with all kinds of goods, mass produced goods, both domestic and foreign manufactured, um, permeated all spheres of life and caused confusion. Um, commercial markets and culture consumers, culture, uh, consumer cultures became increasingly complex. Um, with this proliferation of goods and multiplication of things for sale, different ways of classifying, classifying daily use items appeared. Some were deemed domestic, and hence authentic in opposition to enemy imported goods. Others were brand name commodities uh, uh, situated or, or pitted against so-called counterfeit uh, items. There were also in between recycled repurposed goods. Right? So all of these categories were shifting and changed over time and among different groups um, and uh, of producers and consumers. Fervent debates about exactly what formed an authentic versus fake a native versus enemy good were constantly taking place. Within this dizzying terrain of repurposed and recycled knockoffs, consumers were actually quite aware of the complexity and often proved savvy and resourceful in navigating the array of goods, oftentimes able to choose and select the best fang mao counterfeit item. Um, and in that, their mind, this item did not elicit illegal or ethical connotation. They did this uh, oftentimes by relying on trademarks themselves, often repurposed, derivative, and artfully copied to navigate, navigate this marketplace of knockoffs. Um, and it was in this context then that both allegedly spurious marks featured in the above cases, right, the Guangyi company's Xiangzhi product and the punning brand sold by Shunta, uh, that they gained significance. Hardly marks that deceived in acts of passing off, they added and arguably abetted knowledgeable and appreciative consumers in wily acts of consumption in a much larger market of rogue knockoffs that eluded emerging trademark regimes of the early 20th century uh, and that continue to elude uh, the global IP uh, regime today. So thank you very much. And uh, I believe I turn things over to Arana. Great, thank you so much. That was uh, really fascinating. And we actually already have uh, questions coming in, uh, but maybe I can abuse my, my privilege and, and ask uh, just a little bit about, so I, I actually 
uh, cheated a bit and checked in vernacular industrialism in China to see if Xiang Mao soap turns up, and it does turn up. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit. There's only one instance, of course, it's a passing reference. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit also about sort of the origin story for this project and to what extent and how it emerges out of uh, the book that you just wrote about Qian Diexian. Um, and then and then there's a bunch of questions that, that we, will, we will go to. So. Okay. So it does show up. I didn't know it showed up. Okay. There is one passing passing reference to, to, to I think, uh, the 1919 case, I think, actually. I see. So. Okay. Okay. So, 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 yeah. I'm now getting all my all my allegedly counterfeit Fang Mao soaps mixed up. Um, yeah. No. The um, it does very much um, emerge from this question because Chen Jiaxian himself um, was uh, had a very. I, I found I found his views on copying very interesting, and it referred and I use in the Chen Jiaxian case and and the book in general. I use his sort of single case to kind of reflect upon larger um, practices of copying in China. Um, and uh, to think about, um, you know, concepts like fang zhi and gai zao, which uh, starting already in the self-strengthening movement were actually really uh, promoted as uh, virtues, um, as key aspects of how China was going to self-strengthen itself. It was through the adaptation, the translation, the importation and appropriation and emulation of foreign technologies and that there was nothing wrong with that. In fact, that was what you had to do. Uh, and that idea um, was uh, continued all the way down until Chen Jiexian um, as a national products movement for Huo Yundong leader. He wrote a treatise after treatise and, and advocated and practiced and, and urged and exhorted his fellow manufacturers to uh, engage in uh, imitation fang zhi, right, gai zao. Um, and indeed, uh, uh, he himself, right? He said, okay, many of my technologies come from abroad. I translate my recipes uh, from abroad in terms of how to make cosmetics. And he would then take those cosmetics uh, and then tinker with them and try to find um, local um, um, ingredients, right? Locally sourced ingredients, because a lot of, this, of the ingredients that came with these kind of Western formulas uh, or translated formulas, uh, China didn't produce domestically and would have to be imported and was extremely expensive. And that actually... Um, spurred him to become a, a raw ingredient manufacturer of magnesium carbonate because that was crucial for cosmetics. Um, and so, so this was actually very much a theory of his uh, that you have to uh, imitate in order to strengthen China. Um, and, but it's not just blind imitation, right? It, it's imitation that improves the item, right? That you, you, you tinker, you locally source, you improve um, and you adapt, right? Um, and this was born of very real uh, conditions, right? China was, um, you know, during very chaotic period in the early 20th century, it was economically weak, it was politically weak, it didn't have access to um, a manufacturing base anywhere near what Europe had. Um, so, so these were sort of tactics of the weak um, that he uh, promoted um, as being uh, a source, you know, a, a virtue that Chinese um, merchants had to to adopt in order to to survive, um, and so so I'm, I am very much interested in that. The irony of Chen Jiaxian, of course, is that while he advocated the copying of technologies, he went after copycats who tried to copy his 
his his mark, his brand, um, because he became a very famous, <laughs> um, you know, uh, manufacturer, and uh, he was very very concerned about the ripping off of his name, both in, uh, in terms of being an author, he was worried about copyright issues, but also also in terms of being a manufacturer and the people who were like ripping off um, his uh, butterfly uh, trademark. Um, so certainly, you know, and he was more than willing to turn around after advocating, you know, the need to copy foreign technologies. He was more than willing to turn around and say, okay. Okay, look, but I'm going to appropriate and translate all these legal tracks about IP for trademark infringement to protect my trademark. So, so you know, so there's there was in his mind no inconsistency whatsoever. Um, but it does talk about the fluidity. This example, um, Chen Dixian's example, and the examples I talk about today of uh, global IP. I mean, China was not alone. Um, it certainly was increasingly targeted. And this is one of the arguments I'm, I'm making with this new book is that, you know, how does China out of all of the copiers throughout the world, including copiers, widely copiers in London and in the metropole, right? Why is it China that gets to uh, em eventually emerge as you know, the quintessential copycat of the world, uh, a reputation it really you know, continues until today? Um, so that, that kind of gives you a sense of, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, where 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 some of my interests uh, came from and how they continue into the new book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, in some ways, uh, you, you, some of your remarks right now have anticipated a question from my other teacher at Columbia, Madeline Zellin, who has asked sort of two back to back questions. This was something I was thinking about also, uh, uh, whether you have encountered cases and, and you seem to suggest in, in the case of Chen Biesian, you have where both sides, uh, both you know, the litigant, uh, both litigants are are actually Chinese companies, uh, and uh, does it happen in the case of uh, 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 other products that you see? Uh, and then uh, uh, Madeline Zenon follows up and says, uh, "What what was the use of similar characters and puns supposed to signal to the consumer? In your case, the wily consumer would know a good was not the Western original. If people would respond to buying a product that was not the foreign good, why play the game of pretending to be Western?" So I think you were you were signaling some of this already in terms of national product movement and the role of patriotism and so on. But I was wondering if you could reflect on both the the Chinese versus Chinese kinds of cases, and then and then what what is going on with uh, what is what is being signaled to the consumer? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is um, uh, an early part, which Maddie uh, knows very very well as an expert, an economic his, leading economic history on the late Qing and Republican period. But this is a period where law is. Uh, of all sorts, including commercial law, this is what she works on, uh, is emerging and evolving and hardly set, right, and hardly fixed. And um, there are merchants who, like Chen Jixian, who eventually become quite powerful and who uh, seek uh, or use the uh, the power of the court, the power of the law to pursue copycats in order to protect his brand. Uh, he does so in multiple ways, not just through the legal regime, because it was, I mean, he, you know, he was productive, um, he was producing things in the 1920s and 1930s. And so, you know, there were copycats already in the 1920s and trademark infringement law was very, very imperfectly. Um, it wasn't, you know, the final draft of the Kuomintang, you know, trademark infringement, you know, trademark law was not until 1928. Right. So and, and even after that, it was very imperfectly implemented or pursued or applied. Um, and so uh, I have many instances of cases like where Chen is using instead other tactics, which includes browbeating, uh, like literally sending agents to browbeat merchants who are selling fraudulent, you know, butterfly brand goods, right? Um, or uh, exposing people um, in 
newspapers, right? Um, sort of featuring copycats in newspapers, taking this out. And this is this was actually a tactic that not just Chinese merchants used against Chinese copycats, but that Western merchants used against copycats everywhere. So I have an, uh, another chapter uh, of of this book of book three that looks at Hazeline Snow, which is a very uh, very popular. Um, um, Vanishing Face Cream, um, and Arnab knows this project because it, it was something that we did together when the Osiris volume on science and capitalism. And there, Burroughs Welcoming Company went after all these copycats of Hazel and Snow throughout the world. And because uh, early 20th century, a lot of uh, the trademark uh, trademark law was imperfect in many places, right, um, including in London itself, right. So the way that Burroughs Welcoming Company would would go after copycats was by forcing them to uh, post apologies in um, newspapers, right? Kind of to shame them into stop stopping, uh, stop using um, uh, the their brand. Um, and that was sometimes effective, sometimes it was not. They some, you know, there was a Chinese case where the Chinese merchant just, okay, here's my apology and then continued to copy, right? So, um, so, so, so multiple ways of, of going after uh, copycats were being used in this period where the, the regime, the law, the legal regime was still, still quite, um, it, you know, it, uh, irregular, right? Um, in terms of, why, so the second question, I, I'm not sure, why would consumers use uh, why why do they need to have a pun? Maybe Aaron. I, I, can, I can repeat. I can repeat what yeah. she said. Uh, so, uh, what what was the use of similar characters and puns supposed to signal to the consumer? Uh, so, uh, in your case, the Wiley consumer would know a good was not the Western original. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people would res- respond to buying a product that was not the foreign good, why play the game of pretending to be Western to begin with? Sort of, why yeah. not just completely be different? claim to be different. Yeah, well, I think it's a very playful culture, right? I mean, you know, so there's an appreciation of puns, there's an appreciation of wordplay, there's an appreciation, uh, I mean, that's part of the commercial culture, right? I mean, when you have something kind of funny and, and witty and winking, you, 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 as a consumer, fetishize that object even more. So, so it's, so I think it signals not necessarily that this is or isn't a Western product, but more, um, you know, another kind of, um, value of the good, right? Um, that there is something that it could be appreciative, right? And, and and you see this today, I don't, you know, one thing that comes to mind is like when people kind of carry the fake Gucci's and then write, this is a fake Gucci, right? I mean, there's this kind of aspect of commercial culture that's quite performative and um, um, both by the consumer and by the producer. So so that that's how I might uh, sort of take a look at how these puns were being appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should, uh, um sort of mentioned to the audience, I'm sorry, in my excitement to, to get to the questions, I, I didn't uh, invite everyone to, to feel free to, to, to write, write in with the questions to use the Q&A function. The, the floor is certainly open, so please please feel free to, to add uh, the question to the questions that have already come in. Uh, but th- there's a question here uh, right now that sort of I think is very much related to, to the conversation so far, which sort of I think invites you to speak to the to sort of the market and the literacy in particular of the consumers. So this is an anonymous attendee. They, are, they thank you for, uh, for a very intriguing talk. And then ask, uh, they're wondering about the literacy rate of that time period, where the manufacturers aware of common consumers' abilities of recognizing the difference between characters. And if I could add a little bit to that, to sort of maybe ask you to speak also about, is this largely a sort of a Shanghai market or maybe a treaty port market that is being envisioned? Or are they thinking also of, um, you know, other cities that are not treaty ports and then maybe even, you know, uh, more broadly the hinterlands and so on? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, an effective mark or trademark 
can hit and appeal to consumer, a, a whole variety of consumers, right? So there might be somebody who appreciates the Cantonese pond, who is from Guang, you know, Guangdong and is a savvy urbanite um, who can appreciate uh, the Cantonese pond, uh, uh, you know, the and 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 wittily purchase um, uh, the soap that's produced domestically, and. Um, um, you know, same thing with uh, the Chen Jiexian butterfly example, right? Um, so it could be, it could appeal to, um, you know, anyone nationwide as a uh, a Guohuo Yundong product, right? Though if you speak Mandarin or if you can read the Chinese character Wu Di, right, you know that it's a without enemy, right? It's 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 a Guohuo product, and people might just go out and be, you know, incited to, to buy because they're nationalistic or patriotic. But if you re, if you live in the Shanghai area and you know Shanghai, well, that's another level where you might kind of appreciate the product and the plant, right? And the, and the, the good itself, the, the, you know, the, you know, the Chen Jiexian case, um, it, his goods, uh, yeah, definitely reached the hinterland. It also reached global markets, um, Chinese diaspora in Singapore and in Southeast Asia, um, who also kind of knew. And it, he himself was very much like attached and the brand itself is very much attached to um, the Yuanyang Hudiapai culture, right? The Mandarin duck and butterfly fiction culture that also bled into the emerging film culture, right? So, so these goods were, I mean, it was an incredibly sophisticated commercial market uh, in early 20th century China. And uh, these goods would kind of attach themselves, you know, to, um, uh, you know, different parts of the consumer market, including film, including fiction, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so, and, and in terms of literacy, you know, I mean, there's also people who just kind of, you know, who might not have been able to, or were semi-literate, or, uh, you know, who nonetheless, you know, liked, for example, the butterfly imagery, um, or the beehive imagery. They'd seen the fancy beehive imagery associated with the Western soap. They might not have gotten the pun on uh, in, in terms of the Burke Hill, the Cantonese pun, uh, but they saw a beehive mark that was similar and evoked the, the Western uh, good and the, West, the Western original, but they could buy the, uh, the alleged counterfeit at a much cheaper price, right? So, so goods, like good marks actually appeal in multiple ways. Um, and, and I think many of these examples just speak to that. Mm-hmm. Great, we have, uh, we have a, a two questions from Joan Judge, but I'm going to break them up into, into sort of take them separately because there's a question, one of them speaks to another question that's that's sort of more uh, broadly about sort of uh, Chinese culture, if you will. Um, but but so this is a question from Amit Neufeld who says, what in Chinese culture leads to such a propensity to copy and counterfeit in the past and the present? So first, would you even agree with the framing? But if you do, then, then how would you respond to that? And then there's uh, John Judge's first question. Uh, so she thanks you for an exciting talk. Uh, and then uh, asks you to sort of reflect on maybe uh, sort of what might be influencing some of these counterfeiting practices. In particular, she's asking, did a long practice of counterfeiting art in the late imperial period help to train Chinese consumers to recognize and navigate counterfeit items in sort of a, a new globalizing economy? Um, so uh, could early counterfeit colophones possibly be a precursor to the trademarks then in that in that sense. Okay, so uh, first to Amit's question. Um, yeah, so I yeah, I probably would actually frame it a little bit differently um, in the sense that, um, you know, my 
entire the, the the aim of the of this of this book is to actually question whether Chinese culture actually has is more inclined to copying than any other culture, right? I think there's copying worldwide, and and um, uh, especially um, you know. Uh, at this moment where modern IP is kind of still emerging, right? And um, one of the reasons why modern IP and emerged at this point in time was in part because these large pharmaceuticals are is trying to kind of quell worldwide copying. And this included in China, in Japan, in India, in Canada, in the US, you know, in Europe, in, in France, everywhere, including in London. They were actually extremely worried about domestic copycats, a lot of these British copiers. Um, and one of my arguments is that China was targeted and deemed an, ex an exceptional copier or uh, in part because of the anxiety they had over the market, over, you know, the, the British presence was waning during the early 20th century in China and never had complete control as it did in other parts of the world like India. Um, so, it, and it, it had a long history of not being able to penetrate the Chinese market and to um, uh, sort of, you know, conquer the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Chinese markets locally, right? Because China is so vast, right? So that anxiety um, about its control commercially and economically, as well as politically, as empire was waning in the early 20th century, um, meant that a lot of these European companies and, you know, the foreign office, the British foreign office, which is oftentimes representing these companies, right, um, was really keen on showcasing the China as like the other of capitalism, right? And, and that's that's what I was trying to also show with the first case today in the uh, Xiaomao case, right? How language was part of that othering of China, of trying to treat China as not really fitting into commercial modernity. Um, it's, it's language held it back. So it couldn't have a modern trademark, right? Um, and so, um, so I would actually reject the idea that China copies more than other places. Um, but rather what I'm interested in saying is that there was lively copying going on and, um, and that that emerged from a particular commercial culture uh, that um, was multi-tiered precisely because you had foreigners who were bringing in importing very, very expensive items. And there were uh, local um, companies in the early 20th century who, was very, who were very willing to kind of make mock items or repurpose um, commodities or trademarks um, in order to just carve out a niche in a very, very competitive market, right? And that, that I think occurs everywhere, uh, but particularly in China, because it was a very, very um, complex market that was not strongly controlled in the early 20th century. Um, and um, and so that's also why I think it was so targeted, right? Again, that anxiety. Um, uh, and then and then today, you know, I think the ongoing kind of refrain that China only copies and doesn't innovate is one that reflects more the anxiety of those people who are saying that, which are oftentimes Western powers, than it does about Chinese propensity, like authentic, you know, essential Chinese propensity to copy. I mean, you know, it's, 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 I think a way, you know, there's a threat, there's anxiety about China's rise as a 21st century superpower. Um, and so this refrain that China only copies and doesn't innovate is meant to, you know, demonize uh, the emerging superpower rather than really being uh, an accurate depiction of what China does. Um, so I'll keep it at that. 
Now, um, I think Joan's question. Um, the, the the long practice of counterfeiting art in the late. Yeah, period. you know, I I think absolutely. I, I I know very little. I mean, that is something that I think I I you know as I delve into this project, uh, that would be great. I mean, you know, there's some recent work done on, I mean, there's always been anxiety about forgery, right? And, and um, you know, I mean, back to ancient, I mean, Bruce Rusk, Rusk has just come out on um, practices of forgery with colophones, right? I think maybe maybe this is what Jonas was referring to um, throughout the late imperial period. Um, and um, the, uh, uh, so I think that's an abs- I think that's a very important um context um, to look at. And, and, you know, I mean, legally speaking, I think um, the late imperial, and this is something that Maddie Zeller would know, know very well, um, you know, sort of the Qing law um, probably didn't persecute, it was really guilds um, and kind of, you know, sort of local merchant communities and associations that might kind of try to um, uh, police or regulate um, you know, uh, sort of excessive copying of, of a, a mark. But um, I think the, the law itself actually did very little to comment on kind of private interests, like private interests or private merchants uh, who were being copied. They could not turn to Qing law for um, that much protection because Qing law was more concerned about forgery of the state. Um, uh, although there are some cases, I, I do believe like Chiu Peng Sheng, who is at... Uh, originally in Taiwan, these now in Hong Kong has done some interesting work of, of some early uh, examples, uh, even of Qing, uh, you know, sort of private merchants turning to law in the, in the Qing to, to defend their marks. Um, so, so, but I think Joan's uh, suggestion is fabulous and something I'm going to look into a little bit more. Um, and then she had another one. Yeah. That- so she has a second question, which, uh, which I was also really quite intrigued by. Uh, so she asks, um, if you could say something about the creative energy behind these witty trademarks. Uh, so whether teams of well-educated graphic artists who work for these companies, uh, who were these individuals? So I guess I'm thinking of advertising firms and uh, yeah. I guess Mad Men in the 1950s comes to mind immediately um, as sort of this kind of, is there is there like a burgeoning uh, sort of, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, professional, professional class that emerges? Uh, so, so, yeah, so... Um, you know, so I don't know specific to the the two Xiangmao uh, derivative soaps. I don't know. Um, I have yet to know exactly how those marks were generated or produced. Um, but um, you know, I, I know a little bit more about the Chen Diexian, the butterfly mark, and um, I know that he was, you know, he, I mean, he had he ran this, you know, vertically integrated, very sophisticated. Um, company, right, that produced um, daily goods um, of all sorts. And uh, he had an in-house, I mean, he was very, uh, just a brilliant marketer. And so he had an in-house, you know, publicity uh, group, and he had, uh, so a team that worked on the trademarks. Uh, He hired very famous artists uh, who were calendar artists at the time to do, uh, you know, the flowery trademark that I showed with the the, um, butterfly on the tooth powder uh, cover. Um, and I can't remember the guy's, uh, the, the name of the artist is a very well-known artist who um, is featured in Ellen Liang's work on um, calendar artists that emerged um, during the early 20th century. So there's a, there's a whole, absolutely a professional class of, of artists who probably once originally would have been trained as literati artists, perhaps, um, but now in the commercial culture of Shanghai and other big cities, right, we're being hired um, to do these, these new visual 
products, right? Advertisements and so on. And, and there's been work done on advertisements, um, including Western advertisement. Carl Crow was a very, very famous early Shanghai advertiser. But, but obviously, and he himself, Carl Crow, would have used because they would have been invested in kind of translating foreign marks, right? Um, but uh, so he would have, he, and I know he did use uh, teams of Chinese um, artists and, and uh, punsters, <laughs> you know, people who had the creative energy. Um, so, yes, that, absolutely. Great. Thank you. Uh, so we, we are past the time we said we would stop at, but we have some great questions still. So if, if you don't mind, we can maybe take, take these, these the okay. two more. I, I mean, there's many, many more I have, but there are at least two more that, that have come from the audience that perhaps we can take and then, and then we can bring the session to a close. Uh, and they're somewhat related, but maybe we can take them one at a time. So the first is from uh, Ren Ren Yang who says, thank you, Professor Lin, for your illuminating talk. To what extent uh, the hegemony of global capitalism propagates and enforces the problematic distinction between the authentic and the inauthentic uh, to the detriment of a lack of appreciation of the playful forgery in Chinese art tradition? So this is related to what you were just speaking of. In other words, the condemnation of counterfeits only becomes a thing after the invention of the copyright law or, or the hegemonic commercial culture, whether it be in literature, in film, or in, in, in material goods, in Republican China actually bridges the elites and the grassroots tastes through playful consumption. So there's also a nice sort of class, class element to this question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this is part of my project, right, is to show how global capitalism um, uh, seeks to establish this hegemony um, and try to distinguish between authentic and inauthentic goods in order to, in order to support uh, large corporations' interests in global markets and uh, how the Chinese have been actually extremely successful throughout history in terms of invading, invading that hegemony. And, and perhaps that, that's what speaks to the previous question about, you know, uh, do Chinese copy or not? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, in a way, one of the reasons why uh, they are uh, attacked or deemed uh, quintessential copiers is because they're so good at evading this hegemony. Um, and, and because the hegemony does seek to, um, you know, make the uh, playing field uneven, right? Um, and so oftentimes wily producers have to kind of, you know, carve out sort of a corner of the market through means that, um, you know, the, the, the global capitalists m- might not appreciate as much, right? Um, so absolutely, that's, that's, that's a, a, you know, primary motivating force in my, in my work. Um, and, uh, and it does uh, mean that they can't appreciate this kind of playful forgery um, that we see um, in the uh, trademarks that I looked at, but it is a much longer tradition. So this goes back to Joan Judge's comment as well, right? This is a much longer tradition. And it brings to mind too, this is something that I look at, it, actually part of my Chen Jiexian project as well. Uh, Chen Jiexian uh, himself was a, um, uh, a writer first and foremost in the earlier years. And he was all about play. He was, he was, there was this huge culture emerging in the late Qing in, 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 in literature, popular literature that informs eventually the Mandarin Duck and Butterfly stuff. Um, but it was also um, informing kind of um, the, the romance, you know, this sort of uh, this culture of sentiment um, that turned around the concept of yoshi. And people have, have done a lot of work on this, um, where it was literally about playing with things, playing with genres, playing with formulas, right? And he himself as a writer would play with pre-existing formulas, including narratives like Holo Mong. You know, he was all about writing. And that was a period, that's what many writers of the time did. They would reproduce playfully sequels to the, to the Dream of the Red Chamber. Um, and all his romance novels, like, you know, real authors later on, May 4th office would criticize them as being unoriginal. They're all derivative. They all, you know, they all yet another Holo Mong sequel, right? But that was precisely the point. It was, it was meant to be kind 
kind of wink, wink, this is kind of a forged, but playful rendition of yet another homo uh, story. And that's, and those things sold like hotcakes, you know, and, and that is exactly what bridges the elite and the grassroots mm-hmm. states, right, through, you know, through this kind of playful, playful consumption. So I think that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Yeah. Great. And, and your, your remarks about playfulness in some ways also evoke, I think, uh, what Sylvia Lintner has tried to do in her new book, Prototype Nation, and, and, and talk about sort of creating these, I think she's calling them hacker spaces, right, where you have sort of unleashing creativity, uh, but it's also central to uh, a transition precisely away from China being seen purely as, as a copycat to actually a creator of all kinds of, so new prototypes in some ways, uh, yeah, of all yeah, kinds of exactly. ideally high tech, but all kinds of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, we, we'll, we'll give uh, Fan Yang the, the, uh, the last question here. Uh, they're asking, uh, they say, fascinating talk and so important in historicizing the contemporary phenomenon of counterfeiting in China. Uh, what do you think of the more recent uh, detranslation of IP in Chinese discourse, as in IP film, so IP dianying, versus the formal translation of Jersher Chan Chuan, intellectual property? Wow. Um... Detranslation. So I don't know. I mean, this is fascinating. Um, I'm going to have to contact Fan Yan because uh, Fan Yang, <laughs> I don't know anything about this, um, but it sounds really interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what, what I'm not sure if it's she or he or they uh, means by uh, detranslation. Mm-hmm. So you mean that it's no longer uh Right, fully written out in Chinese, but now uses IP, right? Is, is That's my, my understanding too. Yeah. So they're no longer using the Jersher Chan Chen. So I would love to learn more about this and I'm going to have to contact uh, Fan Yang directly. And I'm sorry, I don't have a, 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 a specific um, answer to, to that recent phenomenon, but it is, it is fascinating. Great. Well, okay. hopefully it'll lead to, to a fascinating uh, conversation and exchange. <laughs> um, well, they have a quick comment here. Maybe it's Yes, using the acronym. So, but yes, I guess it's a conversation that you can you can sort of uh, continue. Um, and in some ways, uh, maybe as, as as a quick last word, uh, something that uh, is also, of course, intriguing is to what extent does the adoption of simplified characters uh, mm-hmm. does it affect um, sort of this the the the, the broader points you're making? Uh, and this would be to sort of I guess see if there are case studies in in the more contemporary moment that echo some of these kinds of tensions and concerns. Uh, but anyway, that's just a just a concluding thought. Yeah. I don't know if you have if you have a final word on that. But I, I mean, I, I would imagine that you can still pun and do yeah, wordplay yeah. in in. It's just different kinds of punning and wordplay. Right. Perhaps some of these earlier ones don't quite stand up in 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 a, a kind of a simplified character context. But simplified right. characters are you know still you know lend lend themselves quite a bit to to punning. So you, I mean, <laughs> I guess you might see the classic sort of conservative kind of pushback where oh, mm-hmm. it's no longer as playful <laughs> as it was. Right. You know that sort of thing. Right. The lament. Right. The lament in some. Ways, that yes, this is this is this is crass. It's, uh, it's, it's still crass, right. but it's crass as opposed maybe, to maybe 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 it might be you know sort of those who kind of fondly have nostalgia for you know classic you know sort of you know sort of complicated or traditional and a more classical education that you know that that has all the illusions that 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 you know exactly. But I mean, I think you know, I mean, you know, simplified <laughs> characters as well. I mean, you know, this uh, you know, it's a, a thriving Poss- poetry culture that. Right. Continues in possibilities China and commercial China, right? So, right, so right. there are endless possibilities. <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, on that note uh, of endless possibilities, uh, we wish you all the best with uh, with this uh, project. Look forward to, to reading it, hopefully soon. Oh, gosh, uh, yeah. And, and, <laughs> Me too. And, and, thank, 
<laughs> and, yeah, well, and thank you so much for, for a fantastic talk. And thank you to everyone in the audience for, for joining us. Uh, and we hope to see you again in, in four weeks uh, when we welcome Joan Judge. So, Professor Lean, thank you again so much. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Arunab.